Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. We are headed into the second week of a sermon series that we kicked off last week entitled Age Old Retold, where we're taking a fresh look at some of the familiar stories and characters from the Old Testament. And last week, I spoke with you all about Hannah and her long journey to becoming Samuel's mother. And we talked about what it's like to show up with God as you honestly are, with hard feelings, and also about the importance of not just counting your blessings with God, but also coming to God to count your losses and your unmet expectations in order to open your heart to the possibilities that lies ahead. So tonight, we're gonna pick back up with the story of Hannah and her baby Samuel. If you'll recall from last week, or the story, if you weren't here last week, um, in her prayers to conceive Samuel, Hannah offered a bargain to God. If God would give her just one baby, she would give his life back in service to God. And that's where we're picking the story back up tonight. So it's the year after Hannah has given birth to baby Samuel, And it's time again for Hannah's family to make their annual trip to the tabernacle at Shiloh to offer sacrificial offerings and pray. And Hannah knows that if she goes on this trip, it's going to be expected that she's going to hand baby Samuel over to the priest. And so she decides to skip it. She is planning on keeping her bargain with God of giving Samuel up to that life of service, but she's stalling a little bit. She says to her husband, after the baby's weaned, then I'll bring him myself and I'll present him to God and that's where he will stay for good. Now, weaning at that time was typically when a child was between the ages of two and three. So she was buying herself a little bit of time. And I know that she must have treasured that time with this long-awaited child, especially knowing that it was going to be short. Because if you'll remember, Jewish scholars believe that her infertility lasted 19 years. And she's getting two or three with this baby. And so the years pass, and the time is up, and Samuel's weaned, and she wants to make good on the bargain that she believed brought her that baby. So she takes Samuel to Shiloh, and she finds Eli, the priest, who had witnessed her desperate prayers to God for a baby a few years back. And it says in scripture that she said this, excuse me, sir, would you believe that I am the very woman who is standing before you on this very spot praying to God 
I prayed for this child, and God gave me what I asked for, and now I'm dedicating him to God. He's dedicated to God for life. So she hands over Samuel, and she begins to pray. And I'm going to read you not the entire prayer, because it's kind of long, but some bits and pieces from her prayer of thanksgiving to God. In Judaism, this prayer is known as the Song of Hannah, and it's regarded as the primary role model for how to pray to God. And it's read each year at the start of Rosh Hashanah services. So I'm going to follow it by reading also the Canticle of Mary, or part of it. And I want you to listen for the similarities between these two prayers, because there's a really neat connection across the centuries that I'm going to talk about after. So this is a part of the Song of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Nothing and no one is holy like God, no rock mountain like our God. Don't dare talk pretentiously, not a word of boasting ever. For God knows what's really going on. He takes a measure of everything that happens. God brings death, God brings life. He brings down the grave and he raises up. God brings poverty and God brings wealth. He lowers, but he also lifts up. He puts poor people on their feet again, and he rekindles burned-out lives with fresh hope, restoring dignity and respect to their lives, a place in the sun. For the very structures of earth are God's. He has laid out his operation on a firm foundation. He protectively cares for his faithful friends, step by step, but he leaves the wicked to stumble in the dark. No one makes it in this life by sheer muscle. God's enemies will be blasted out of the sky, crashed in a heap, and burned. God will set things right over all the earth. Now, I have some hellfire and brimstone issues with some of this prayer, but I want to go on and, and read to you a piece of the Canticle of Mary, or what we know as the Magnificat. This is the prayer that Mary spoke when she was pregnant with Jesus, and she was visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. She says this, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From all this day, all generations will call me blessed. The almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to help his servant Israel for he remembers his promises of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and to his children forever. So Hannah's story has a lot in common with Mary's. Biblical scholars refer to Hannah as a foreshadowing of Mary. They both somewhat unexpectedly give birth to sons who would become prophets to the nation of Israel. As you've heard, the song of Hannah and the canticle of Mary are so similar that some believe that Mary must have known the song of Hannah, which makes sense, right? She was a good Jewish girl and she would have heard it read at the start of Rosh Hashanah services each year, and she would have heard it held up as a model of how to pray. So Mary spontaneously praised God using words of scripture that she had hidden in her heart. And I love this potential connection across the centuries that Mary's prayer was in fact pulled from Hannah's prayer, 
learned over the years and held in the silence of Mary's own heart until the right moment. So with this prayer of praise complete, Hannah leaves the toddler Samuel with Eli, the priest. It's said that she would visit Samuel each year when their family would make their annual pilgrimage. And scripture said that she would bring him each year a new little robe like those the priests wore in that day. And this is largely where Hannah's story in the Bible ends. Many of you know that I'm an adoptive mother and I had the privilege to spend an incredible day with my child's birth mother. So I'm not gonna discount what it must have been like for Hannah to make the sacrifice of her son not, grow, not growing up with her. So it's hard for me to say that Hannah had a happy ending, but she did end up living into possibilities that she could not have imagined when she first poured her heart out to God. She went on to have and raise five more children after Samuel. So at this point, scripture switches gears and begins to focus on young Samuel. Samuel grew up with God under the watchful eye of Eli, the priest. So Eli was an old man when Samuel came to live with him, and he had grown sons of his own. And scripture says that Samuel thrived as he grew up in this life of service that he had not chosen to God. But Eli's own grown sons were busy making some not so great life choices. Among other things, they were taking advantage of and stealing from people who came to make sacrificial offerings at the temple. And everybody in their community was gossiping about it, but Eli wasn't strong enough to confront them about their behavior. But he definitely knew about it. In scripture, it said that a respected community member came to Eli and said that he'd received a message from God that there was no way this could continue. He went on to say that God had told him that Eli's sons would die if their bad behavior did not stop. So Eli knew that his sons were behaving badly and he did not try to stop them. I guess as a parent, you might call Eli a bit of an enabler. He lets his son's bad choices continue rather than confronting them and compelling them to change for the better. So their behavior continues and years pass. And now we find ourselves in Eli's home. It's the middle of the night, and Samuel is about 12 years old. And to put that part of the story that I'm gonna tell you next in perspective, that would be the same age as my Beck or Nancy and Anthony's Eliza. So Samuel, 12-year-old Samuel and Eli were sound asleep in their respective bedrooms when God came calling to follow up on Eli's son's bad behavior. And I'm gonna read from 1 Samuel chapter three. Then God called out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, yes, I'm here. And he ran to Eli's room saying, I heard you, I heard you call, here I am. And Eli, waking from sleep, said, I, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And he did. And then God called again, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel got up and he ran to Eli and he said, I heard you, here I am. And again, Eli said, son, I did not call you, go back to bed. And then God called again, Samuel, a third time. And yet again, Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, yes, I heard you call me, here I am. And that's when it dawned on Eli that God was calling the boy. So Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. 
If the voice calls again, say, speak, God. I'm your servant, and I'm ready to listen. And Samuel returned to his bed. Then God came and stood before him, exactly as before, calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And this time Samuel answered, speak. I am your servant, and I'm ready to listen. I appreciate this bit of physical comedy in scripture, you know, God calling out in the night and Eli's an old man dead asleep and Samuel thinks it's Eli a full three times. I try to appreciate, you know, he's, he's waking up, he's bleary eyed, he doesn't know what's happening and back and forth he goes between Eli's room and his own room until Eli finally grasps what's happening. God is calling Samuel. And Eli tells Samuel to go back to bed. And if God calls again to say, I am your servant, and I'm ready to listen. And I've thought a lot about that simple answer. How often do we answer that way when God is trying to speak to us in the many ways that he does? He doesn't stand at my bed and yell out my name or anything. But how often do we answer, I'm your servant, and I'm ready to listen? Listening is a skill, right? It's probably the most important skill in relationship building. So why would it be any different in our relationship with God as it is in our relationship with human beings? How often do we sit down to pray and simply say, God, I'm ready to listen. For those of you who have had a chance to participate in the monthly contemplative services that Lonnie and Brian Pierce lead us in, listening to God is at the core of those contemplative practices. In fact, as Heather Lynn mentioned, next Saturday we're going to treat everybody to a really beautiful, full contemplative service instead of our usual worship structure. And we're going to practice in a variety of creative ways, listening to God. It's not something that I pretend to be very good at. If you sit next to me in a contemplative service, I'm super fidgety. <laughs> but I have yet to sit in silence prayer, listening for God, and not felt his presence. So let's read on to what God has to say to Samuel when Samuel finally says, I'm ready to listen. God says to Samuel, listen carefully. I'm getting ready to do something in Israel that is going to shake everyone up and get their attention. The time has come for me to bring down on Eli's family everything I warned him about, every last word of it. I'm letting him know the time is up. I'm bringing judgment on his family for good. He knew what was going on, that his sons were desecrating God's name and God's place, and he did nothing to stop them. This is my sentence on the family of Eli. The evil of Eli's family can never be wiped out by sacrifice or offering. So remember, Samuel's 12 years old. He's grown up under Eli's supervision since he was a toddler. He probably doesn't remember living with Hannah. Beyond the annual visits that she would make to the temple, Eli was his family. And Eli was the one who had taught him everything that he knew about living in service to God and who had taught him how to listen to God. And then God just tells him this awful bit of news about Eli and his adoptive brothers. God says to him, the time has come for me to bring down on Eli's family everything I warned him of, every last word of it. And we know what God had already warned Eli of through the concerned community member that came to him. It was that his sons would die if Eli did not confront them and convince them to end their bad behavior. So I try to think about what Samuel must have felt that night 
probably a lot of awe that God was speaking to him, directly to him, for the first of what would turn out to be many times in his life, but also that God was speaking these harsh words about his chosen family. I imagine that Samuel lay awake in the dark after God spoke, and that that darkness must have felt so much darker. He knows that Eli is awake, just down the hall in his bedroom, waiting to hear what God has to say, but he can't bring himself to get up and go and bring him this awful news, so he holds it alone. He thinks when and if Eli asks him directly, then he'll speak the truth. He probably laid awake listening for God to come back and say more, or for Eli to call out and ask, until slowly the darkness of the night lifted and the day began to dawn. He knows that Eli is surely going to come and find him that morning and ask for the truth, and Samuel will have to repeat these terrible words. And he understands that God is calling him into a great unknown, where he worries that his courage and his words are going to fail him. And I imagine those last minutes warm in the silence of his own bed were probably full of wishes to stay innocent and safe and uncalled to speak for God. So what does he do when morning finally comes? Well, he puts off being the bearer of bad news for a while. We've all done it, right? We've all avoided having a difficult conversation which is exactly what Samuel does. He gets up really early and he gets very busy cleaning the temple and preparing it to open for guests. I personally dread when I have that feeling that God wants me to tell somebody a truth that the other person isn't gonna wanna hear. The old saying, don't shoot the messenger, comes from experience, people shoot the messenger. And in this case, Samuel had to be the messenger of delivering this bad news, right? Time's up, Eli, for your sons, they're going to die. And despite Samuel's best attempt to forestall this truth-telling, Eli does finally find him in late morning. Let's read what it says. But then Eli summoned Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel came running and said, yes, what can I do for you? And it makes me laugh that Samuel went with feigned innocence, right? Like he didn't think Eli was going to follow up on God calling out to him three times in the night. I mean, I get it, right? It was worth a shot. But Eli dives right in. What did he say? Eli asks. Tell it to me. All of it. Don't suppress or soften one word. As God is your judge, I want it all, word for word, as he said it to you. And so Samuel told him, word for word, and he held back nothing. That exchange made me grow in respect for Eli. How often do we give the messenger of truth our support? How often do we invite hard truth in? How often when somebody comes to you and says, look, I don't want to be the, have to be the one that's going to tell you this, do you respond like Eli? Tell it to me. Tell me all of it. Don't suppress or soften one word. More often, I say things like, why did you have to tell me this? Why didn't you tell me sooner? How could you have kept this from me? We shoot the messenger. We say we want people to be truthful and honest with us, but we don't often act that way when they try to be. We tend to default to defending ourselves. Or we go on the offense, trying to hurt the person delivering the message. We hang up the phone. 
We walk out of the room. We do a lot to avoid difficult truth. And it's rare when somebody responds like Eli, asking for all of it, taking it all in, and not responding immediately. And there's wisdom here in Eli's invitation to the truth. When people are brave enough to try to tell us hard things, we should try to invite it in. To take it a step further, we should try to cultivate relationships where there's a known openness to the truth. As in, I try to be in relationships with people where you can tell me anything and you won't fall outside of my love. I might get a little quiet while I think about it. I'll probably have a lot of follow-up questions later. I might need to hug you a little extra while we figure out how to hold this new hard thing between us. But telling me something that's true, it's never gonna be a net negative between us in the long run. And that's how Eli approaches things with Samuel. He says, tell me, tell it all to me. Tell me all of it. And Samuel does. And in doing so, he proves his faithfulness to God. He proves his willingness to listen to God well and his willingness to deliver God's truth to his people, even the hardest ones, even to people that he loves. And so God continued to speak with him, to him and through him, and Samuel's faith was made stronger by the presence of God. Throughout the rest of his life as a prophet, he continued to be able to hear and share God's voice with the people of Israel. Scripture closes the book on Samuel's young life saying this, Samuel grew up and God was with him, and Samuel's prophetic record was flawless. Everyone in Israel from Dan to the north to Beersheba in the south recognized that Samuel was the real thing, a true prophet of God, and God continued to show up at Shiloh, revealed through his word to Samuel at Shiloh. Will you pray with me? Here we are, God. May we hear you calling us in the night like you did Samuel. May we say that we're ready to listen. When you bring us hard truths, may we invite you in. May we ask to hear all of it. May we be your brave and kind speakers of truth and love to power. And may we never stop being able to hear you in the many ways that you call us. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.